and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them. Hello everybody, Um, I'm here today with Amanda Sinclair. Amanda graduated with a law and commerce degree from Griffith University. Like many budding lawyers, she volunteered at a community legal centre and that's where she became friends with Bryony Walters, who is my co-interviewee. At some stage, she decided to pivot away from her career as a practising lawyer and now uses her law degree as a senior and a senior intellectual and property officer at a background music company. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Lorna. <laughs> and with her today, like I said, is Bryony Walters, who's going to help me interview her. Thanks, Bryony, for coming along. Oh, hi, Loretta. Thanks for having us along. Um, so welcome to you both. So, Amanda, I'm going to start with the questions. Bryony, but please jump in when you can. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because I'm really interested about what is a background music company. So a background music company is uh, basically a company that provides background music, quite literally, to, um, to venues like pubs, restaurants, uh, retail spaces... Um, the music that you don't tend to notice, but does the job of setting the, the right ambience, depending on the space you're in. Um, so yeah. If I, if I had a venue, why wouldn't I just use a CD with Christina Aguilera tracks on it that my GM has provided me with? Why would I be, um, procuring background music from a company? You could certainly do that. Um, however, in a professional setting, um, you, you, you want the music to, um, I guess, um, you know, really support the, um, the vibe you're going for in the venue and also to represent the brand. And, um, people think that sticking a CD in a, in a play, in a, uh, in a player and having it play to, to customers, for example, um, is just an easy thing, but actually, um, when you think about it, um, there's a whole lot of things involved. Like you've got to, you know, select the music that's right. You know, is there, is there swearing in the music? And you don't want to be playing, you know, inappropriate music to, to customers that are there to, to hopefully buy a whole bunch of stuff from you. Um, and yeah, and I think with background music, it's one of those things where you, you don't really notice it when it's good, but when it's bad, you do. Mm, so that's yeah. true. But but I would have thought that the biggest problem with what Bryony's just said about sticking a CD into a player and playing it is that it's a public, it's publicly, um, well, not public, I was going to say publicly showing, but it's not showing because you're listening. But isn't it the problem about trademarks or, you know, copyright or what? what is the issue about playing somebody's music 
in a public space without permission from the artist or is there any rules around that? So yeah, so under copyright law in Australia and in most countries throughout the world, um, anytime you what they call public publicly perform mm-hmm. music, um, a license is required, which essentially means permission is required from mm-hmm. um, the um, owners of the the copyright and the music you're playing. So, in terms of um, yeah, when you're publicly performing, which means anytime you're not playing music at home in private, mm-hmm. it's a public performance, and you require a license for that. Um, and there are um, bodies in Australia where you can, um, there are two main bodies in Australia where you can go to, um, to to take out those licenses rather than having to go directly to um, artists. Um, I could imagine yeah. trying to go to and Christine Aguilera. <laughs> yeah, right, just Aguilera, I just hit her up on Instagram. Like, of your songs at Coffee Club Belimba. <laughs> Do you mind? Uh, Do you mind? <laughs> I think that, 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 I mean, that's why it's so good to have those background music companies. I'd say that there's still a lot of people, though, um, uh, performing that music publicly without a licence in Australia. Most definitely. And one of the things that uh, that the company that I work for do, we have a, um, a information wing where we provide our customers with information regarding public performance licences mm-hmm. because it can be um, a complicated space that a lot of, not a lot of people understand. And, and certainly a lot of venues, despite being used to having to, you know, take out a whole variety of licenses like liquor licenses and, you know, gambling licenses and all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the music, there's this real um, idea that music is there to be used whenever you want, however you mm-hmm. want. Um, so, yeah, we've had to develop a, an information wing to go, Hey guys, no. If you're playing this music, you need to go and get the the right license for it. Much like if you're serving alcohol in your venue. Mm. I think that uh, I mean one of the interesting things is because you know I like going to yoga, and you know often you'll hear music being played at yoga, and often none of those people have licenses. But I also think one of the reasons why I've started to listen to some music outside of the yoga. Uh, studio is because I heard heard it in the yoga studio and now I listen to it and subscribe to it on Spotify so I think sometimes it, there can be a benefit where it is being listened to even in those very informal settings which would require license but then most people wouldn't play any music at all and I think it probably would mean that artists wouldn't become heard in those spaces because you're certainly not going to go and get a license if you have seven people in your yoga class or unlikely to uh yeah and and we sort of run into that sort of mentality Mm. all the time yeah but at the end of the day um you know it's it's a business much like running a yoga studio so yeah i guess it's part of what you're doing is working for an organization where the business that they're engaged in is like part of the role of that organization is to persuade actors in the market space that it's worthwhile for them to pay money to engage your services exactly so and so it's Mm -hmm. about um you know it's a value chain too you know um if if we want people to, to, to understand the the value of music, mm. we've got a, um, I, I think we have a, a sort of an obligation to show them, um, yeah, I guess the, the, how it is valuable and, and why they should be paying for use of music. Um, mm. So, yeah. I don't know if it's because I'm a lawyer, but the thing that speaks to me the most out of the stuff that I hear um, coming out of 
the place that you work for or the kind of narrative that I hear coming out of there is stuff around like risk management in relation to reg regulation. So hearing that there's always the possibility that if you have a venue and you're mm. um, playing music, because I understand from you that somebody will roll in and then you'll end up with a fine or... Mm. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it's that that is certainly the case. However, the two the two main organisations that are responsible for, um, I guess, issuing the license, mm. um, one of them, which represents the the publishers, actually, um, is more financially able to send bodies out to do live inspections, mm. whereas the other one that. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of like um, war chest, if you will, of money to go and send people on. So they rely more on um, online research mm. to go, you know, what what are these venues doing musically? Because quite often um, most venues put all of that information online anyway. Yeah. So um, there's not really that much of a need to actually go on and attend a venue. Um, but, you know, certainly where... Um, I mean, because the only way that you can, um, I guess, enforce your copyright rights is to um, essentially, like, sue for them. So you've got to go and collect the evidence that mm. someone's actually, you know, playing music without a licence and that requires you to go on site. But they only do that in, in very serious situations where um, they've been in contact with a venue and the venue just, like, refuses to take out a licence. Mm. So, yeah. Well, um, I, mean, I, I mean, it's perfectly understandable but I just wanted to go back because you said your organisation has an information service so is that free? It is free um, so we are a premium service provider um, and for us um, in a for us that is that is a value add and it, it's th those licenses are essential to the service and, mm -hmm. and we think that um, anyone that is using our service should mm -hmm. have these licenses out because that's the right thing to do mm. um so yeah we do we provide where when a client phones up and says i've just been contacted by this organization that say i have to pay them what is it don't i pay you and so we have to explain to them that you know they pay us for um you know curation um you know selecting the right songs matching the songs to their brands um we also take out um what's known as a mechanical or a reproduction license um that allows us to take songs and fix them to our mm -hmm. servers um, so yeah, our, our service covers all of those things. However, when it comes to playing the music to your customers, that's actually the customer's oh, responsibility. So they still have to get a separate license for that. They do. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So under copyright act, mm. um, they recognize two, two copyrights in, in the song and, uh, sorry, the, yeah, two copyrights, um, in musical works and also sound recordings. And that is, um, mechanical reproduction and public performance rights. Mm. So Yeah. Oh well, then I've I've learned something. Have you, Bryony? <laughs> Always. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Amanda, how did you become interested in background music? Like, that's a bit odd. Is this a is this a result of many late nights in nightclubs in your twenties? <laughs> it's nowhere near as exciting as that, and I think it's actually. Um, when, yeah, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, actually, that's... Because for the most part, this all happened by accident, essentially. Um, I finished law school or, or I was coming to, to the end of my degree and, um, you know, friends like Bryony, who I went to law school with as well, she had done a way better job than me of going out and getting experience in firms. 
Um, and she managed to pull me into one of the um, jobs that she had working for a, um, a small private family law firm um, run by one solicitor or two. Out of, it was one solicitor out of the bottom of her house. She couldn't keep a legal secretary and she would alternate between screaming and crying most of the time. <laughs> oh, and it was Hellish. such... Yeah, it was horrible. And I think I lasted maybe two shifts and then I was like, bye... Um, because it was just like, she was, she was frantic and she was all over the place and, um, another friend worked there and in one instance, the employer hit our friend and oh like both of us had stopped working there, but it just sort of indicated our view that it was not a good place to be. Actually, I was I was speaking to my brother today who was telling me about another lawyer and he goes, he's a very traditional lawyer. You go into his office and all you see are files piled everywhere. I <laughs> like that. Yeah. 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 And, she had um, a very nice dog though. She did have a nice dog. That's all the dog would be in the workspace all the time, like this big fat golden retriever. Mm. Like one of the things I remember most about working there, um, aside from the, yeah, the piles of paperwork, um, is that she... <laughs> make me do these really like bizarre things like um one time she got me to like wax down her wood her wooden desk drawers so that they wouldn't be so i guess squeaky they would glide in a lot more easily that's the moment when you're there going yes i'm building my career right now this is all this is gonna be worth it and you thought i'm never practicing as a lawyer yeah and at the time i was like i work at coles right now and i don't have to wax any desk drawers (laughs) suddenly that doesn't seem so bad you know so i ended up staying at coles until she got a 10-year badge (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I waited for that sweet, sweet long service leave. Um, got it. Probably like one of the like peak moments of my career so far, because um, it came with a gold badge that's had my name on it, um, which was nice. Badge? Somewhere, surely. Okay. Um, so this was you'd already finished your law degree and you kept working at college. I did. I did. I. So when I finished, I just, I didn't know what I was going to do or what I wanted to do. And um, I think I'd never been particularly ambitious career-wise. And and I, instead, I, I guess, like even when I finished year 12, I just let the momentum sort of carry me into law school because I'd always said that, you know, I want to be a lawyer, like from a young age and mm-hmm. my immigrant parents sort of like... Um, heard me say that and we were like great and kind of kept that that going and um you know at at that point (laughs) my whole understanding of what it meant to be a lawyer was entirely based on you know like tv shows i was watching (laughs) you know and is that why you decided to pursue a career in law because of the tv shows i guess that's that's where it started like when i was younger and then um it just sort of like kept going and gained. What were you watching when you were younger? Oh, like I loved um, like cop dramas that also had like the legal um, sort like of LA law. Or something. Yeah, um, I really liked the Commish, like a super old school. And I I loved that show so hard. Um, yeah, like uh, NYPD. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was I watching? And I, I really liked the idea of um, 
like solving solving uh, crimes. <laughs> so I liked that. Um, I loved Murder She Wrote. Like I was <laughs> such a huge fan of that. And for some reason in my head, I was like, this is what being a lawyer is about. It's like solving crimes. Oh, I grow you know? up, I'm gonna be Hercule Poirot. <laughs> isn't, isn't it funny because we all have this impression particularly because uh, I mean I think American crime dramas particularly have evolved to always see the prosecution as a mm. really um, you know acting for the good of the community and it's you know quite different in real life and definitely yeah. personally I identify much more strongly with Better Call Saul <laughs> with who? <laughs> Saul Goodman in Better Call Saul oh well I, d- I haven't seen that <laughs> Okay. I want to come back to this idea of drifting, though, and please feel free to tell me that I'm totally off track. But I, and this is, you know, 10 years ago or more for us now, but I always got this impression because you and I began with the same degree, law and psych, and then we were friends with another person who was doing law and psych as well. And you had decided that you're going to drop psych and take up commerce, and that meant that you would graduate a year later than me and our other friend. And I always wondered whether that meant that as I was really feeling that pinch in terms of getting work experience, that it didn't feel as urgent for you and you were less inclined to jump on that wagon with us as we were going through those things and then you were sort of at a loose end. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I just... I think that I was just so unsure of where I wanted to end up. But what I did know when I switched from site to commerce was that I, I wasn't interested in any of the, um, you know, when I started doing psych, I thought I was enrolled in behavioral science and then it changed, didn't the, the degree changed to psychological science. Yeah. And I really thought that behavioral science was going to be something, um, different to what it was for whatever reason like because I was young and I had no idea um and I don't know why honestly I don't know why Griffith was attaching that name to that degree because it was exactly the same course structure as the psychology degree. yeah so. yeah and so I just I was in there and I was like I'm not enjoying this stuff I should do something else because at Griffith we had to have like when you do a law degree you have to have like the second degree at the I don't time they do that anymore they don't but mm. I, I did it double degree as well yeah, yeah. I think but, the idea was mm. that you'd have something to fall back on because law had such a high dropout rate mm. um, I yeah. don't know if it was something about Griffith trying to market themselves as a university that was getting people into jobs and maybe they decided that they thought that the graduates were more marketable with doubles Yeah, um, because I, I think that I could be wrong you know there's so much focus on what's the rate of but I think it's all, but I think it's also about that maybe it's also that Americanization of the degrees because law it's is also <laughs> you have to do a double well yeah. it's a graduate degree in America isn't it yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. so you you wouldn't be able to get a straight law degree in America anyway so I think okay. it's probably bringing that over but I think when I, I can't remember I think that, that you could do a straight law degree but it was really encouraged that you did a double did degree double. but I think law is much easier to get a job out of than having an arts degree mm, I think or yeah. even a commerce degree because I did an economics degree 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And thinking mm. about it now, I'm like, was this just like a revenue raising thing for for the mm. university to go? You know, because at the end end of it, instead of getting what like was a law degree worth like thirty forty. 30,000 off me, they ended up getting like 50 almost from the double. So, mm. um, the thing that I always thought about was the idea that presumably, if it had been straight law, we would have graduated at 21. Yeah, far out. I can't. That, no. Jiminy Crickets. <laughs> I, I, must, I must say, you know, I, when I finished my law degree, I thought I knew nothing. And often what I find with, um, young people sometimes it has been that they think they know everything <laughs> i was actually really interested in this point when you were speaking to frank garcia mm. that idea that when you're young you might when you're a young practitioner mm. you might assume that you know everything or you can just pick it up mm. and then you figure out you're wrong but then you mature into a different kind of practitioner who goes oh actually i, I probably do have the skills to acquire competence mm. in that area but a bit different and <laughs> just assuming yeah. that you can do anything I think young. I, well I, I think because the thing is the law the understanding of the law is actually quite different than the practice of law mm-hmm. and um, it's actually about nuances it's actually about relationships it's about how to negotiate things about how to build those relationships over time and that's what makes you a good lawyer I don't knowing the law does not make you a good lawyer because it's all about those relationships and how to navigate them mm-hmm. and I think that takes a long period of time for you I, I mean I must admit I think I was quite shy as well quite reserved so but anyway it's it, it's an interesting thing but we got off track because Sorry, yes. the question that I actually asked was how did you become interested in being part of a background music can, company. Can I? May, uh, may I? Sure. I like to uh, hear this and I'll uh, correct you where needed. Okay, please. Go ahead, please. Um, so I'm that horrible friend who um, tries to non-consensually or have a history of non-consensually case managing people around uh. me. Um, so I, and I think that this was really actually an expression of my own anxieties at the time around finding my own way. But in as much as Amanda was drifting it felt imperative that I find a solution for her as well as for me somehow. <laughs> um, and so I was giving Amanda really quite a hard time in lots of ways and just trying to find this solution of what should you do. Mm. And um, Amanda loves music and I had done an intellectual property intensive and maybe you'd done it with me or maybe you didn't do I it at all. Th- no, I think, I, yeah, I did do and, that intellectual property. Yeah, and yeah. so I said, you should do intellectual property. You like music, so you like copyright. You should like copyright. You should do this. Mm-mm. Yeah, and um, we had a, oh, I think at the time, he, like he was your friend mm-hmm. and he was working for the company that I work for now. Uh-huh. And... Um, he sort of said, um, you know, there's a space opening up in our um, accounts team. You know, you have your commerce degree. Use that as you're in to get in there. And we've also got this this licensing unit that you can work your way up into. Mm. into. And I was like, that sounds interesting. Um, but also, at the time, I was, I had hit my 10 years at Coles. And I was like, I don't, I don't want, I know that if I don't do something now... I am the type of person who will stay in this job because there's nothing wrong with it. Um, it well, I didn't find it necessarily um, that 
intellect I didn't find it intellectually stimulating in the way that I needed it to be mm-hmm. um, but it was easy um, and I could do it and um, you know I think now that I'm older I can realize that a lot of um, my apprehension about um, you know finding um, you know meaningful work and work that was related to the the degree I did was about you know my insecurities around my um, intelligence and my capacity to do those sort of things um, do you so, think that's because you're a woman that you had that that or surely that mm. plays into it like surely that has something to do with or your background that's part of the tapestry like both of those things mm. like I think that, and so many other things yeah yeah like everything um, but yeah no of course those mm. things um, uh, play a role in it you know um because what is your background then, Amanda? So my parents are um, what they call um, Anglo-Indian. So um, now I find this absolutely fascinating because I had an Anglo-Indian friend like years ago and I looked at her and I go, you look like so Indian. <laughs> there is no white about you at all. Like right. I'm looking at her going... And I, I once asked, I said, so what does an Anglo-Indian mean? So you can explain it for the <laughs> podcast because that was fascinating for me because I'm thinking you're, you look as um, you know dark as any Indian I've ever met. There is no white. You just didn't look Anglo at all. Yeah. Um, so I guess from what I understand it, like my parents were born and raised in India, um, but I guess at some point in the... Um, uh, the family tree like mm. quite close to them I think um, there was European intervention mm. you know when um, the British came over and um, raped and pillaged essentially um, my dad's family has um, Scottish, Scottish um, heritage um, mm. so somewhere along his I think I think his his great grandfather maybe mm. was Scottish and his great grandma was Indian. Mm. Um, and yeah, so my dad is, is quite fair and he's got like the really light green eyes as well. Mum, mum's family has um, some um, British, European, some sort of European whiteness up in there. Um, but she's a lot darker cause they also have, um, African apparently in mm. in the uh, the family tree as well. So mum mum is is a lot darker, I guess, and and, and kind of looks like her features are more um, Indian than I would say mm. dads who tend to be more European. Mm. Um, so essentially, yeah, that's it. There's uh, yeah, and that's, that's exactly how she explained it to me. She just said there is some ancestry that was white mm-hmm. at some stage, and. But the interesting thing, the thing that I found most fascinating was that they then took on all those cultural things of the British and that family, she couldn't even speak any Indian. It was all English. That's exactly our situation as well. My parents grew up speaking um, Hindi as a second language Mm. Um, and my mum and dad came here when they were... 14, 13 and mm. so their whole life they'd spoken English, they'd gone to English schools, um, they lived in a, like English um, area and it's quite interesting because my mum is from Madras and my dad's from Jhansi and they're two um, 
quite separate regions of India, as far as I understand. And so it was interesting that they both sort of grew up in, um, yeah, like really English <laughs> colonies, I guess, of India. Um, so, you know, they came here and all they knew was, <laughs> you know, the bad yeah. words, the swear words. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we didn't grow up speaking Hindi at all. Um, but we did, that mum and dad did uh, maintain a lot of their cultural um, practices. Like we, we ate Indian food all the time. Um, like culturally, um, we grew up quite different, I think, to, um, to what I saw my, um, you know, friends whose, whose family had, you know, been born and, and raised here as well. Yeah. Who just had that European yeah. heritage. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. That, that is interesting. I just, I couldn't believe it. It took me like a few years before I could ask that question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you oh. just look so Indian. Like, what the, what does an Anglo-Indian mean? So I'm glad you explained And it's not something it. that I've heard anybody else really talk about unless it was someone who was identifying as Anglo-Indian. Like, mm. I've never heard anybody refer to it as... Um, refer to it bef- to before unless they were self-identifying as mm. Anglo-Indian. So no. maybe it's just not a thing that people... Oh, it's so funny, right? Because I remember talking to my cousin about you and, like, I only really came to know him as an adult. And so I didn't really know much about the way that he grew up because he was estranged from his dad for a long time, like my dad's brother. And so then he was like, you know, I'm Anglo-Indian too. And I was like, what? Because he's totally light-skinned. Actually, it's just occurring to me only now, like 33 years later, that actually the term Anglo-Indian probably has a lot to do with the caste system over there. Ah. And it's like, you know, mm. them going... You would have been outside them going, um, Just so you know, we've got white in us, like, oh, wow. we're okay. Like, we sit up higher in the caste system. Which is actually really kind of kind of gross now that I think about it, um, and, and it's I, interesting actually. I don't know about the specifics of the reasons that your mum and your dad both ended up coming to Australia, but I, and I'm no you know history or geopolitics buff, but I understand that when the British withdrew from India, that created like a complicated situation for Anglo-Indian people who remained in India. Um, I am not so sure about that. I've never heard yeah. them speak about that. Um, but I think it did definitely have something to do with um, the British withdrawing because, um, you know, my dad's dad was working um, uh, on the railroads over there while the British were there. And my dad's mum was a school teacher in an English school. Um, so surely <laughs> that had something to do with their decision to come over here. Mm. Um, and it was also about, you know, making a better, a better life for um for them as well um but in terms of mum's family like she has i'm probably gonna get this wrong like six um siblings um and the oldest one um who is some years older than mum um migrated here first with her husband and then she slowly brought the rest of them over um because they didn't have the financial means in the same way my dad's family did to to come straight here so yeah Oh well, so if 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 my listeners are interesting, now you know what an Anglo-Indian <laughs> really is. So there you have it. You've oh, you've probably I mean, learnt something. Honestly, I'm not sure that moving forward, I'm going to be like 
self-identifying as Anglo-Indian anymore because it, it seems a bit... Well, I think maybe... On the nose. Maybe, well, not necessarily. I, I think the thing is, it's very interesting culturally that people would have thought so much about having that heritage of, um, you know, British heritage or white heritage. But also, I think it would have thrown you out of the caste system. So it might have been something that was very alienating for people who had white in their background and meant that they had to identify or find people who were in the same boat or had the same sort of background. Something seems like a distinct, potentially a distinct cultural experience to, mm, I think to so. be living in India and to yeah. be no. in that group that would or has been called Anglo-Indian versus the group of people living in India who aren't. I don't know. I yeah, really yeah, it would, yeah. Um, I'm going to take you back to your where you're working at the moment because what do you do as a property? Is it a property and intellectual officer or what's it called? I think it's just an intellectual, intellectual property um, officer. And, and look, um, it's been a real struggle for me to, um, to come up with a title that fits what I do there because it sort of has evolved over time. So um, like I said, I started in the accounts department mm. And um, then a spot opened up in the licensing department, um, and so I moved into that department. And from there, that sort of involved, uh, so evolved to include, um, you know, um, doing a whole bunch of legal research around the intellectual property needs, uh, the broader intellectual property needs of the business as mm. well. So, um, I guess from the licensing perspective, like I mentioned earlier, in order for us to be able to provide music as part of our service we have to pay reproduction licenses um so that's where i started is learning about that space um and you know what's involved in negotiating licenses because unlike um the public performance licenses where you have these two distinct bodies that you can go to and it's like a you know sort of like a blanket um license that applies to anyone who wants to play mm. music publicly Reproduction licenses are, are, are kind of different, um, particularly when it comes to um, the sound recording um, right. And so with the reproduction licenses, you have to deal um, direct with um, labels um, or aggregators or distributors. Um, and it really is a case-by-case -case negotiation, which really depends on um, what sort of um, service your business is providing mm -hmm. and how you're using music. Um, so yeah, I got the opportunity to um, you know negotiate license agreements with um, record labels, um, and yeah, and because of my law background, I sort of moved into um, contract management as well as part of that process. So um, yeah, it was it was I I learned a lot really really quickly once I moved into that licensing space, and obviously I had a a mentor that um, had been in the space for a long time and he, he guided me through that process and I learnt so much from him, although mm. I'd never admit it to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, you never do. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, now we'll mic track back and I know that you said you sort of fell into it, but, do you know, was there any other thing that made you sort of think about a law degree besides watching all those... Why, why didn't you become, I don't know, some sort of model or something? Because, yeah, there would have... Um, so 
I didn't become a model because I guess I just didn't have um, or oh, a princess, a you model, know, like... oddy, oddy, I would have loved to have become a princess, but it just didn't happen for me. I mean, there's still time. Um, no, I think. Yeah, I mean, I also am not built for marrying for money, <laughs> <laughs> but I can be. <laughs> um, so I guess. Like I said, like I've never really, and I guess this speaks to my um, privilege, I guess, because I, I grew up um, in a middle class family, you know, money was never an issue for us. Um, and so I, and yeah, I, I never felt the drive in the same way. I think I, I saw Briny experience that, 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 um, sort of um you know frantic energy around having to having to make it and get out and pull yourself out and um and never go back there dear listener please note that i grew up in caboolture um (laughs) i mean look i grew up in darwin but it jeez how interesting was that in darwin yeah because my that's where my mum's sister first migrated Mm. was to darwin because um her husband um didn't like cold climates and he you know, looked at Australia and did a bit of research and was like, I want to live in that hot, humid dust bowl. So when did you move to Brisbane? Um, When I, sorry, so I moved here in 2004 to start uni um, and I was here for a year by myself. And then in 2005, when my brother um, finished uni, he came here, sorry, he finished high school. He came here to do uni as well. And mum was like, well, time to pack up the family and move everyone over. So that's why did you decide to come to Brisbane and Griffith to pursue a law degree? Why not go to... Oh, I remember this. I hate telling this story because it's so embarrassing. And it sort of, I think it speaks to, like, fundamentally who I am as a person. Um, Were you following a boy? No, no. (laughs) Goodness, no. That would have been me. (laughs) I mean, that would have been... projection? (laughs) I would have much preferred that to be alternative. Um, so, like I said, I was like really carried um, by the momentum that had built um, around me um, that I would sort of contribute to occasionally around, you know, me becoming a lawyer. Um, and so when it came time to pick a university, because I'm from Darwin, like I... Is there a university in Darwin? There is a university oh, in Darwin. Can you can you can and i for me i small town i'm like i'm going to use this as my opportunity to experience another part of Mm. australia and and see what that's like was your cousin already in brisbane i have cousins in brisbane my dad's family's in melbourne Um, my dad went to uni in melbourne and so melbourne was on my list i applied for um i can't remember which uni it was um Anyway, I applied for... It is, um, no, that's it, in Western Australia. I think it was, like, University of Melbourne, and then there was another one. RMIT? Um, no, mm. it wasn't RMIT. Um, yeah, let's, anyway. yeah mm. I know, there's another big university. Yes. And we're really terrible not knowing yeah. about no. it. So let's not, let's gloss over that. And then, I, so I had, yeah, I had cousins um, on my mum's side here, um, and also um, an auntie um, that lived here, and... I was looking at, at Brisbane and um, it wasn't it wasn't as so I before that I travelled 
throughout Australia and mm. Brisbane seemed a lot less scary than Sydney and Melbourne mm. and it seemed like you know I am from a small town and mm. it seemed like the perfect in between and and just what I wanted like I didn't mm. want anything too crazy but I wanted something a little bit more exciting and bigger than Darwin and Brisbane seemed perfect for that but I think the way that I ended up here is that I was looking at all the universities and I I saw Griffith and I was like, oh, Griffith, that sounds like a fancy university. <laughs> Did zero research, right? And um, Signed on for the most dog-ass, <laughs> bum-ass uni in town. Yeah, and I got that prime. And so Griffith was my first. So back then you had to do preferences. So uh. Griffith was my first preference. Um, and then it was like that university in Melbourne and then it was UQ and then UT. <laughs> and... Um, somehow I managed to get into Griffith and I was like, well, nothing else to do but go to Griffith. I just want to clarify that I say that Griffith is dog ass as a Griffith graduate. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I actually I loved Griffith, loved Griffith yeah. so much and I think it was perfect for me. And I'm so mm. lucky that I ended up there because I can imagine I would have, <laughs> I would have turned out it, the like, uni would have spat me out a, a much different person if I had have gone to UQ because I started I currently doing my masters at UQ so I feel like I have insight into what that is like and because I did my masters so, at UQ yeah and, I just and it is and I, went, I wouldn't have been able to survive this as a yeah. young person me and and look I would have to agree uh, coming from the country myself mm. and I found it very difficult because I went to Sydney University yeah. and. It was very difficult culturally to actually fit in there when you're a country bumpkin, when you Mm. come from migrant family, you know, when your family's not, my father wasn't working, you know. So I had all these things. Can you imagine I came into this place, thought, what the hell is going on? Like maybe somebody would have given me a hot tip to pick myself up like a country road bag or a pair of R.M. Williams or something. Yeah. <laughs> Oh well, well I, I used to yeah. I used to go to uni in bare feet. <laughs> that's that's what would happen at Griffith. I, I wasn't getting around in bare feet, but there were people there with bare feet, and it made me feel like I was in the right place. Mm. So I, yeah. before Brian and I actually became friends, I was aware of her because she was the one who would show up to, because she lived on campus, and she was. She was one of the ones who would show up to lectures, morning lectures, in her pajamas with a bowl of cereal. And I was just <laughs> like, I stopped going to class. That is the more, most baller thing I've ever seen. <laughs> who is that? <laughs> and where am I? <laughs> it fits right in. <laughs> it was just so great. It was like, like seeing someone approach, like you know, just not giving. Uh, uh, stuff and it, it just it just made it feel like less intense like yeah. it just made it feel a lot more um, casual I guess and I was like oh I could do this hey hmm. do you remember the guy who was in our class who was um, like openly a satanist and had the magical staff yes Yes. Um, I don't have anything further to say about him, but I just think that that was delightful. That, and that was and probably reflects class. the flavor of Griffith at the time. A hundred percent, a hundred. Because we had we had characters, we had oh, so yeah. many different oh, characters, mm-hmm. um, and I loved every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> they each played their part. Um, so yeah, zero regrets about making. <laughs> like I'm embarrassed about how. 
you know, because I'm I'm going to university. I'm studying law and I'm choosing my university based on what sounds like a prestigious uni to me. This, this is the chaos, right? I was talking to a mentee recently and she was really agonising about um, where to do her PLT and I am... I just told her to go to the one that I'd gone to <laughs> so that I would be able to speak more meaningfully to what's going to happen with it. Mm. Um, because ultimately, like, who cares where you go for PLT? Mm. She's not even working a law job right now. She's working an accounting job. So well, whatever. I always thought you, your law degree probably counts for your first job. Yeah. It's probably important exactly. for your first job. Once you get your first job... Who's going to ask you if you go for another job where you did your law degree? Yeah, exactly. Mm. 100%. But this is not something that you're told. Um, Mm. And I think another thing that I found very... Part of the incredible pressure they put on young people, like get a good OP or die. Yeah. Yeah. Get a good GPA or die in a gutter. But I just, I felt like there was no real, like we were never taught... Well, I don't remember anyone pulling us aside and going, okay, guys, this is what you have to do if you want to make the successful transition to, um, you know, successful law graduate working towards a career. I remember John Tushi in the first lecture in the first year saying, get work experience now. And I was like, whatever, old man, I've got some sitting down to do. <laughs> well, maybe it just didn't feel as... Um, as um, like what important mean, as it ended up being. We had, we had five years. So when you're 18, 17, and you're in year one of five years, yeah. that's like high school all over again. That's forever. Yeah. That's like yeah. a quarter of your life so far. Like how could that ever feel urgent at yeah. that particular point in time? Most definitely. Um, but yeah, anyway. Griffith rules, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's um, such a it's such a lovely story. I mean, I only cho- chose Sydney Uni because I I thought it was the most prestigious <laughs> university I could go to. Is it? It's in Sydney, right? Aren't they all? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was at that stage. You know, I was there. I'd grown up in New South Wales, so I think it was the best university. But how would you know? Like, how you know? Like, I mean, it. There's also a value judgment in there that the thing that you're for is a prestigious uni when actually maybe that doesn't matter. And really it doesn't matter. If if you don't feel confident when you come out of that degree or you feel too out of place in that degree, it's, it's not a good feeling for you. So I think... Choosing your university, well, it's just so difficult. How do you do it? You've probably got more of a chance now with the internet and being able to review stuff and talk to people. Mm. But certainly when I went through university, yeah, nothing. Well, you this know? is what I said to my mentee the other day. And I said, you know, you can't necessarily generalise this to all decisions. But for some decisions, it's more important to just make a decision than to worry yeah. about what the decision is. If it, if it just helps mm. you to move forward to build that momentum yeah yeah um so i'm gonna i'm going to skip forward now because was that then that job with a woman lawyer was that your first job in the law or yes upon graduate no no i didn't get paid for it and you guys were getting paid for it but you also had your period of attrition where you did you work for free or was it paid from the get i had approached her to do unpaid work experience and she paid me from my second or my third week right. because she was happy with how I was going. But I'd already set some boundaries for myself around, I'll work for her two days a week. If, if she's not paying me after three months, then I'm going to go and find somewhere else to be. But she started paying me pretty quickly. Yeah. And, I mean, this ended up becoming a thing where Bryony would go, 
tiny bry would go and get um you know some sort of meaningful or relevant experience and then just like pull the rest of us in well I, I, I couldn't stand to do anything on my own it was like i was using people as my security blanket to move through the world but it was great because i couldn't make that initial contact or i couldn't take that um like i couldn't go and do it myself um i needed somebody else to do that and it, it was like i found it I found it really helpful. Oh, um, when I made those first approaches to firms, you know, I was in the room of my share house next to the news agency and Annalie sat at like a, you know, a card table um, wearing my best like quote unquote business clothes, like crying before I, with the script typed up on the laptop in front of me to call these firms like a list of 50 to call to say like can you please please i'm begging you let me know for you for free this is a plea actually i got my first job i did my first job post um university for free at a community legal center i worked there for six months yeah oh i had to i had Mm. to work at a community legal center as a volunteer for maybe six months before Mm. i had the courage to sit down in my room and cry while calling private law firms to offer to work for free Wow. Um, but I was a very anxious and traumatised young person. <laughs> Isn't it funny that, you know, we all probably had that and now look at us, you know, like so many years later. We're thriving. Um, it feels thriving. like a lifetime ago. It does, yeah. yeah. And you sort of think to yourself, why did I feel that way? Like, what? What's the worst that could have happened to me? If you, could you would have had to oil. You would have to oil somebody's drawers. That's the worst. If you could take Baby Manda and like shake her and slap her in the face or something, or I don't know, give her a hug. Mm. Like what? What is it? What do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Um, I think that it that. I think I'd want younger me to know that it's okay to take your time to figure it out. Um, And I think for me, um, what it takes to figure that stuff out is to try a bunch of things. And because I know what I don't like, Mm. Um, I might not necessarily know what I want to do or where I want to end up, but Mm. I know what I don't like. So I don't um, know much about art, but I know what I hate. Exactly, (laughs) exactly, exactly. And so I would, I would uh, give myself the permission to try and to give, give things a go um knowing that if i don't like it i can move on to something else it's oh okay God. what would you have tried if you like if so i look back and I, and I go oh if i had the balls i would have done a year of exchange i would have applied for scholarships i would have yeah. done some other dumb internship that would have been great what would you have i definitely would have, would have tried like an exchange or some sort of like mm. um overseas thing um I would have tried to do an exchange in the US to see what, what that was like mm. compared to here. Because, um, like, obviously my decision to be a lawyer when I was younger was um, modelled off, you know, US-based mm. um, television. TV yeah. <laughs> so I would have done that. Um, you could have become a legal aid lawyer in one of those, <laughs> you know. <laughs> really. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think I maybe I would have... Um, if I, if I was less worried about not being good enough, maybe I would be working in a firm right now. Um, I'm glad I'm not. Um, and no shade <laughs> to anyone working in a firm, but worry, it's, <laughs> it's just not for me. Um, it, I think it's really fundamentally incompatible with um, who I, like uh, my personality. Um, 
because I'm lazy, man. Like I don't want to, you know, I need I need time during the day to to switch my brain off and you know do some Facebooking um, or something. Like I can't That's be. That's what the office bathrooms for. <laughs> well, the having to like the idea of having to like be accountable for every and every minute of your day mm. is just stressful to me. Oh, Actually, that's um, that's I'm gonna I'm gonna go off track a little bit on that because. One of the things that I'm really interested in is what do you do? What do people do as lawyers in their spare time? So do you have anything that you're doing besides Facebooking in the bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) There is nothing else. Um, You mean to to break from work? Yeah, from the law. Or, you know, it might still be law related. Like I know I do some... You mean at work or outside of work? No, outside of work. Um, I like doing physical things um i also like being outside in nature um so i like hiking i like you know going on bushwalks um i love camping although somehow i managed to end up in a group of friends who um only tolerated camping and then we sort of like transitioned to yeah look i get it i get it Um, it has a deep love for netball Yes, I really mm-hmm. liked playing netball, um, but then I hurt my knee, so I had to stop that. Um, I like rock climbing. Um, yeah, I just just anything physical that allows me to to turn off my work brain. Intellectual side, yeah. Um, not so much the intellectual mm-hmm. side, but thinking in you know it's it's a different way of thinking. I I think um, so. Just something that allows me to. To, to yeah I guess switch off from that for a bit um, so yeah hey um, if um, I'm gonna ask the more concluding questions Brian ah. but um, I'm gonna ask if you were thinking about it what do you think the best thing your law degree has given you <sighs> I didn't realize this until um, maybe until I started my placement, or so, until I started volunteering um, with you. Um, That's Brian at you. Sorry. <laughs> with my, um, at um, basic uh, rights, was it? Uh, yeah. yeah I think we say that was basic rights. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Neither of us work there anymore. What are they going to do to us? <laughs> I think I, I, I um, when so, I started there, I thought... I remember nothing from my, my law degree. What like I'm I'm screwed. Like this degree has been about yeah. nothing. But as I started doing the work there, I think I began to realise for the first time that what I got out of law school more than anything else was the, the framework, um, the the analytical framework for um for problem solving, um and yeah i guess you know understanding how the, the law works as well and how legislation works and um how case law works um so it wasn't necessarily about you know remembering a particular case or um a particular piece of legislation which is what i always thought it was oh my because God, that's think, on like, tv I'm, uh, I'm doing a placement at basic rights queensland let me think back to the subject that we did on social security law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was none. Exactly. Mm. Oh, well, that's the other thing because you know all these subjects that we did didn't don't really have much basis of what we actually practice in. No. How much was there on intellectual property law and copyright? It was an elective yeah, subject. We learnt yeah. more about mm. crim law um, yeah. than anything else. Did and we have to do three different crim law subjects, yeah, like was, procedure and crim one, crim two, and then civil. Yeah, it was mm. and and. 
And I had no intention of going to Crim or Civil because... I'm a civil lawyer and I remember none mm. of civil procedure. <laughs> I'm not sure I use any because of yeah. the type of civil law that I do. And so, you know, I, I thought that, like, yeah, I was, I was like, oh, I, I haven't learnt about this specific thing, this specific area. I'm never going to be good at it or know how to do it. But, yeah, I think... Um, and I think it was you who said to me, like, it, it's, it's not about, you know... Um, you know, remembering legislation or case law. It's it's about knowing how to um, go about um, applying it to a particular situation. Mm-hmm. It's um, just about remembering how to Google. And that as well. Like, Google is your best friend, you know. <laughs> the way that uni is set up is that you have to know everything in order to pass a test. But the reality of it is nobody knows anything. Everybody is dumb. Everybody uses Google, and that's okay. The universe mm. is chaotic. Exactly. Okay, mm. Google, how do I win this case? Oh, all sorts. Here's some information for how to win the case in court. Oh, here's a summary <laughs> from the website litigation.com. <laughs> 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 oh, that is so funny <laughs> to not use that word again, please. <laughs> all right. I thought I disconnected that because. Um, I don't want them listening on <laughs> garbage um, conversations. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not going to pull that out. I'm not going to edit that yeah. out. Um, <laughs> so I was going to say, uh, one of the things that's been very interesting and one of the things that I think Bryony is an expert in and I really admire her for is her networking skills. So how do you think... How much do you think your networking skills have helped you develop your career? So, all of those jobs were networking. Yeah, look, I hate networking. I'm bad at it. Um, and, you know, much like work experience, Bry has constantly encouraged me to put myself out there and go to networking events. And I think you've pulled me along to networking events that you go to. Um, and I'm just, I'm very... But then the booze is free. Yeah. And then we get drunk and then we have hey. a fight. <laughs> With that somebody. has happened on more than one occasion. <laughs> With somebody at the network. Well, no, no, either or. Together. Together. But you, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but that job that you got at the conveyancy firm, that was networking, quote unquote, because it was somebody that we knew. Yeah. Um, when you first started working where you're working now, you got that job because I was friends with and living with somebody else who was working there. Yeah. Placement at BRQ. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and now I understand that networking is just about creating personal connections. Um, networking but... is a place in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, and actually, I, one of, um, I think my um, strongest skills is creating relationships, um, you know, in my working um, network yeah. um, but when I hear the word networking I think about really uncomfortable like social situations with rooms of people that I don't know and mm. I'm really bad at those situations so whenever someone says cannabis. networking I'm just like immediately like like no but actually when you broke it down yeah like you said networking is just about making establishing relationships mm. with a network of professionals mm. in, you know, air quotes because um, like I said the booze is free and um, that quite <laughs> yeah, quickly sorts the professionals <laughs> from those who were there to just get turned on someone else's dime <laughs> um, so yeah I, I guess I like through that I do have a um, 
a newfound sense of um, appreciation for networking. Um, and yeah, I guess as I look to um, what my next move is career-wise, um, what I'm finding is that I'm looking at my, you know, um, the, the connections that I've made so far and exploring um, options that way as well. And, and actually that's a nice place in some ways to end it on because I was going to ask you where next for Amanda in terms of her career and what she's going to do with her law degree. Um, I think... Second female Prime Minister. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> um, my body is ready for that. <laughs> I don't know about my body. <laughs> Maybe my mind. Um, I, I... I actually really like the intellectual um, property space. I find it interesting and there are still so many things that I don't know and I still need to learn. And I think over the last five years, um, um, the place I'm currently working now, I've sort of really concentrated on this one particular corner of intellectual property, mm. um, which I think I've, I have in, in a bunch of ways mastered. Obviously there's, there's always room for growth and change. Um, but I think, I think I need a new, challenge and I, I need to um yeah like find mm. something that was as exciting to me as this space was five years ago mm. when I first started um so where to next um I don't know yeah um, but it's exciting it is exciting I um yeah I want to I think I think one of the biggest things that I learned from from this job and, and a bunch of ways this is the first um real like professional job paid job that I, I had and um it's taught me that and everyone's I, an idiot <laughs> exactly <laughs> no I think my biggest takeaway is that actually um I do have the capacity to pick up a um to, to learn from the ground up a completely um new area of um of law and um, that has done wonders for my confidence and it's also opened up a bunch of possibilities for me you know if, if I can do this you know really nuanced area and learn everything about it um, I could do that somewhere else and mm. so that, that's exciting to me so well, we'll look forward to hearing from you again Amanda thank you so much for doing this with me thank today you for having me and thanks Bryony oh, you're the best oh, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you, we're going to be doing a few more of these together oh, thanks thank you for joining us on lunching with lawyers if you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below if you have suggestions ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series head to the contact us page on our website www.loretacrete.com <laughs>